today is the Feast of the Transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've just read about how his whole appearance changes, and that's what it means to be transfigured in this sense. I think the key to understanding this unique episode in Jesus' life is, is to take a look at Peter's odd reaction to it. Peter says, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, to which Luke lets us know that Peter is missing the point when he adds he did not know what he was saying. So what was Peter's mistake? Peter mistook uh, Jesus. He mistook his master for an equal to Moses and Elijah. Um, Now, this isn't a question of Peter being overly prideful or anything. Uh, Peter certainly doesn't mean any disrespect. He knows that the greatest men of the faith uh, to date have been men like Moses and Elijah. So Peter recognizes he's in the company of greatness, and he's He's happy, I think, to to realize or to see that his own master is on par with these two other heroes of the of the faith. But so Peter's seeking to honor Jesus by by doing this, but he's immediately corrected. He's corrected by no less an authority than the voice of God Himself, who says, "This is my beloved Son, whom I have chosen. Listen, listen to him." And then immediately, uh, Peter finds Peter, James, and John find Jesus alone. And so that's really the point of the transfiguration of this episode, is to underscore the fact that Jesus does stand alone and that he's in a category by, him, by himself, that he's not equal to Moses and Elisha, but that he is, he is greater than. We see a similar point being made in the reading from Exodus today. After speaking with God, Moses' face shines such that Aaron and the Israelites are afraid to come near him. Like Jesus standing alone, Moses stands apart. Now, despite this fear, Moses commands the Israelites to come near to him so that he may teach them the law, all the commands the Lord has given him on Mount Sinai. And so as the lawgiver, the story is showing us, Moses stands apart and the, and the people fear him and their obedience must be commanded. They must be compelled to even come near him to hear the law. One of the things I think this is trying to underscore here is that holiness needs to be guarded and kept. And fear is a sign, at least on the part of the Israelites, it's a sign of a modicum of self-awareness on their part. Um, They were not permitted to speak face-to-face with God like Moses is. And so consequently, they don't get to share in the glory either. Um, It it upsets them. And so Moses puts a veil over his face to to hide the radiance and the glory that he has, but that they lack. Paul tells us in a, in a letter from 2 Corinthians, in his letter from 2 Corinthians, that this has led to a centuries-long dullness, uh, on the, uh, which sets in among the Israelites and a hardness of heart. Paul writes, but their minds were made dull, for, the, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. So you remember that the Israelites have to be commanded. They have to be goaded to come to Moses and to hear the law being read. There's no desire for it. There's no joy uh, for learning the ways of God. There's only fear. And it's a similar fear that we see Adam and Eve having after they're disfellowshipped in the garden. They go and hide. They hide after they've eaten the forbidden fruit. 
It's certainly true that there are examples like King David who danced for joy before the Lord, and I think that's one reason why Scripture can call David a man after God's own heart, and it's one reason why David is the, the, the seed from which the Messiah will, will come. Um, but if you look at your Old Testament, the, 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 those examples are relatively few and far between. The, the examples that more often abound are this, uh, is this dullness and this hardness of heart and this fear. Now, there's something to be said for that. Modesty is a component part, I think, of true religion. The veil of Moses was meant to hide the glory of God from, from a people who knew enough that they didn't deserve to gaze on it. And one of the things about a liturgical church like the Episcopal Church or the Catholic Church is that we, we may re maintain some of that idea of uniqueness and separateness and modesty, right? We, I mean, this is perfectly comfortable on a day like today or in the winter, but it's awfully, awfully uh, con constricting when on one of those humid days we had la last uh, uh, month in July. But we wear these robes because it's a sense of, it's a, it preserves a sense of decorum, a sense of modesty about the office, a sense of that this isn't about me personally, but about, about the word of God. And the same is true with, with the structure, the layout even of a small church like this. And the, the congregation is sitting in the, 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 the common area where you all can gather. But as you progress up these steps, it's sort of like the pilgrims going up the mountain to Jerusalem till you get to the most sacred part of the building, which you only come to uh, at a certain part in the service, and, and even the here in that only maybe once, once a month. So this idea of apartness and uniqueness and even modesty is built into, into our worship. It's fitting uh, for God's house. It's fitting for, for worship. But there's also something else that's fitting, and that is boldness. Boldness in the household of God is also fitting. So Paul will write, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. See, if we have, we have such a hope, we are very bold. And what is that hope? The hope is that the glory that we see in Jesus Christ is already ours, uh, at least a share of it, right? The, the veil doesn't need to be there anymore. Um, the, the, the radiance of Moses' face can be ours as well. And the promise is that no matter how little that glory may be reflected at, at any given point in our earthly journey, that glory only increases in eternity. Paul writes, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So there's two ways really to approach religion, right? We can approach, we can approach the word of God, uh, our faith like the Israelites of old. We can be compelled to sit here and listen to God's law and to hear his, his holy word. Or we can approach the same boldly with joy in our hearts and with no reason to fear because God's spirit is in us. And if God's spirit is in us, then God has no reason to fear God. The spirit of God has no reason to fear God. So in the transfiguration we see uh, of Jesus, we see the glory that Adam was meant to have, and we acknowledge a loss of that glory. We stand a respectful distance from it. We cover ourselves in a, in a modest, yeah, I will even use the word shame, because we don't have that glory. But we are told by God to come to him, not out of fear, but with boldness. This is my beloved son. Listen to him in the knowledge and hope that all is not lost and that, in fact, all, including our glory, can be and will be restored. So that's the message of the transfiguration. I will 
conclude with two practical points of application. And the first is rooted in the uniqueness of Jesus, the apartness or the separation uh, that the holiness of God demands. And you know, as, as good um, global citizens, we're, 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 we like to say that everything is, is equal or of equal standing, and, and, uh, and it's true. We can learn much from the other assorted glories of the world, right? We, we can learn from studying other cultures and other religions, but we can't, be, we can't make the mistake that Peter makes here. We can't say that they are the same. We can't make them equal to Jesus Christ and to the Christian faith. If, if we do that, then we are like Peter, not knowing what we say. So as inspiring as the glory of the world can be, it's only a reflected glory. And Christians who have seen the original glory of God in Jesus Christ, we cannot unsee it. If we've heard the voice from the cloud, we cannot unhear it. And so Jesus is the one we must listen to and no other, and we need to allow him to correct all of the other um, words of this world. We need to allow the incarnate word to correct the other words of men. Uh, Jesus is the source of our unity and our truth. So the transfiguration reminds us uh, that we cannot and must not put our trust in anyone else and that there is no basis for true and lasting community other than a shared faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, there are not many paths to the center. Jesus is both the center and the pathway. This is what the transfiguration teaches us. The second application is a word of comfort. Seeing Moses and Elijah standing with Jesus proves that no one who is in Christ is lost, is ever lost. It shows that time is a creature of God and obedient to God's will. I'll say that again. Time is a creature of God and obedient to God's will. Now, we're all familiar with the idea that we're creatures and, you know, your, your pets are creatures and the birds, the blessing of the animals that we'll do in October is a time to celebrate all the creatures of God. But we're less likely to think of time itself as being a creature, and yet it is created. And so God is able to save and create without any regard for the chronological order because time obeys God's will. And this is why the whole debate about, you know, the creation account in Genesis, whether it contradicts science or not, not is somewhat boring if you really understand it. it, it, it time is a creature of God. Time, God makes time obey his command. And it's no more contradictory to say that the Genesis account is true than to say that Moses and Elijah who lived centuries before Jesus are prevented from being saved by Jesus because of their accidental place in history. Chronology doesn't matter to God. As Paul wrote in last week's lesson, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, so there's, there's time, right? Neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor, height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ is one of the many guarantees that what Paul says is true. Amen.